Colossians chapter 1. I'll start in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. Options can be overwhelming, don't you think? Have you ever tried shopping for cereal? 250 different options at Kroger this week for cereal. More important decisions, of course, have even more options and options for decisions leading up to the important decision. You want to go to college? What college? Well, first decide in-state or out, state school or private school, big or small, liberal arts or no. And then after all those decisions, you get to make a decision. Options can be overwhelming. And what we really want is for all the other choices to just drop out and for only one to be left standing before us as what we obviously should do. What about when it comes to God versus not God? That's what we've been talking about in Isaiah. And it's because in every age, people have the same question. How can God be approached or accessed or engaged or satisfied? They're all the same question. How do I get okay with God? Or more importantly, God okay with me. And in every age... What claim to be answers to that question abound? We have a lot of choices. In Isaiah's day, there were plenty of other religions. Egypt had 40 gods that they worshipped. Ray and Osiris, you've heard of. The Babylonians had Marduk. The Philistines, Dagon. Chemosh of the Moabites. And of course, the Canaanite gods, Baal and Ashtaroth. But those were ancient, unsophisticated times, right? Today, we've done away with all of those options and really honed in on 
a lot of options. <laughs> There's the religions of the East, Buddhism, Hinduism. There's Islam of the 7th century. You can follow modern Judaism, the Christless offshoot of Abraham's faith. You can follow a relatively modern religion like Baha'u'llah or liberal Christianity or any number of the pseudo-Christian cults, Mormonism, Christian science, Jehovah's Witnesses, you've got plenty of options. And of course, in every age, there's always the choice of no religion, at least in theory, right? There's atheists, there is no God, or agnostics, the who could know, or even the world's most popular religion, meism. I get to decide what's right and what's wrong. I decide the terms by which I will live. In the face of significant difficulty in the present, and in the face of anticipated difficulty in the future, it happened in Israel. It happens now in Isaiah's day for Judah. It happens to the Colossians, and it happens to you and I in the face of present difficulties and the anticipation of difficulties up ahead, the question stands out. What do I choose? How can God be approached? Or as the psalmist said, I look to the hills. From where will my help come? At every age, then and now, the options can be overwhelming. And wouldn't it be nice if, if just one of those options stood out as obviously supreme above all others? That's the reason for our brief diversion this morning from Isaiah. That's the question Isaiah sets before the people. And the key question that Paul sets before the Colossians is why Christ. The church in the town of Colossae had turned to Christ. That's how they became a church. But things were getting tough. And as it goes, when things get tough, doubt creeps in. And other options start to gain traction. That's how it was in most of the early churches. That's how it is in the church. And in our lives now, we're sure about something until it gets hard. Something is working for us until it's not. And there were lots of people vying for the Colossians' attention and allegiance. The Judaizers, we read about these in most of the early churches. Those who said that, yes, yes, believe in Jesus. Faith in Christ is good. You just need to add to it something else. Faith plus. Faith plus the Jewish traditions and the customs. Faith plus your works. There were the Marcionites. They'd be named that later after their most prominent teacher, but they existed and were prevalent here in Colossae, and they made the argument that Jesus was not actually one with the Old Testament God. Jesus was actually antithetical to the Old Testament God. He was the answer to him. He came to save us from him in opposition. There were, and this is, as far as we know, somewhat unique, to the Colossians, a group of false teacher going around who were obsessed with the supernatural realm, with the, with the angels and the other created spiritual beings. 
Now, we know from Scripture, Job, for example, all throughout the Old and New Testaments, we know that these beings are real. They exist. There are other supernatural created beings. Some of them are good, servants of God. Others rebelled against God and do evil. And we know that these supernatural beings have some characteristics that we do not have. They have some power, some attributes that do not belong to mankind. And the natural result of human fallen minds is to worship such things. You see this even among the faithful, even the prophets occasionally will encounter an angel and their first thought is to fall down and worship. (laughs) And the angel says, no, 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 no. You got no idea how far the gulf is between me and God. But some people don't see that gulf. They see the gulf between them and the supernatural beings, and they create religions out of that. Satanism, Wicca are in this realm. Any supernatural power, good or evil, is to be worshipped. And so imagine yourself at the church in Colossae. You, You have all of these options before you. And the gospel comes, and you follow Christ, and you believe in Christ, And the circumstances of your life don't get any better. In fact, they get harder. Now you face opposition. Now you're not just a member of this weird Jewish religion. Now you're a member of a sect of this Jewish religion, this bizarre Christ-following cult. And so Paul from Rome writes a letter. And in this letter of Colossians, he's Narrowing down the options. He's answering the question, why Christ? And he's making the case that the way to approach God is not through all of these not gods, even the supernatural beings, the angels, certainly not through works, not through man-made philosophies. No, the way to approach God is Christ. To paraphrase a more modern expression, the answer to all your questions is Christ. And that's the book of Colossians. Now, this morning's text is broken up in two parts, verses 21 to 23. This is Paul's persuasion and application of the truth to the church in Colossae. Verses 15 to 20 are the truths. They're the principles, the truths that he will use and apply to persuade them of what's true. And if you look at verses 15 to 20 carefully, you see that these verses from their form and their language, they are clearly some kind of early Christian hymn or confession of faith. We know that they had them. The Bible says that they sang not just psalms, but also hymns and spiritual songs. The New Testament refers to these reliable sayings, these early creeds that were handed around, testimonies that were used in worship. And here, clearly, Paul is taking one of those. Maybe it's a couple verses from a hymn. Maybe it's an early creed. He's taking one of those familiar sayings. And he's using it to answer the question, why Christ? He's saying to them, you already know the answer. Let me remind you of it. And as an aside, this goes back to the point in last week's sermon about our need to remember and repeat. We need those hymns and spiritual songs. We need catechisms and creeds. Of course we need scripture memory above all. But Paul here is able to rely on this language. It's a much shorter letter. He can use a smaller number of words. 
with a large impact of doctrine because he goes to some words they already know, something they've already memorized, that language that's familiar and known, and he's able to, to call it back to them as the answer to the question. Many of you know the story of the miracle at Dunkirk. It was certainly uh, brought uh, fresh with the, the newer film about it. 350,000 allied troops trapped with the German forces incoming and ready to destroy them. The entire British expeditionary force would have been wiped out. And there were no ways of communicating that were not completely open to the Germans and to the enemy. The only transmissions they could send out, they knew were going to be read and heard by everyone. And so what happened? A British naval officer sends a three-word transmission. But if not. You see, that only works if we have a familiar language. It only works if that language caused people to remember what they already knew. And they did. They did. So many British civilians heard that transmission. But if not not. They heard of this, this cable that was sent and their minds were immediately drawn back. They knew where that came from. That comes from the story of Daniel. That comes from three young God-fearing men who were about to be thrown into a fire and for whom there was no escape and who bravely said to King Nebuchadnezzar, our God is able to save us and maybe he will. But if not, we will not Turn from him. We will not worship your gods, Nebuchadnezzar. Either he will deliver us or we will die in our stand here. And that's exactly what the British people understood. That there was no escape for this force. That they were not going to turn. That they were not going to give themselves over to the enemy. And so what did they do? They got in their boats. They got in their fishing boats. They got in their merchant boats. They got in every boat they could find. And they came. And in a miracle of Dunkirk, they rescued some 338,000 troops. That's why we catechize our kids. We're not hung up on if they understand every word they're learning right now. We want to get the words in their minds so that we can use them later to answer the questions that will naturally come up in the course of life. It's why we should be catechized with scripture and psalms and hymns and creeds so that we learn now the answers to questions that will come up naturally in the tumult and chaos, chaos of life. And that is exactly what Paul does here. With all of these options, with all of these other choices, with all of these not gods available to them, claiming that they're the answer for the trials and the difficulties that the Christians are now facing, Paul calls on them to remember the answer they already knew. He is the image of the invisible God. That's verses 15 through 17. Christ is supreme in all creation. It's this great one-two punch in the Bible because on the one hand, we ask, how do you believe in the one you have not seen? And you say, faith. Faith is how you believe in the one you have not seen. But ask the question again, how do you believe in one you have not seen? 
And the answer is, God has made him visible in Christ. We have seen him. Christ is not like God. He's not merely sent by God. He is God. He is eternally the image of God. He is the exact representation of God. And Paul says there is never a time when he was not. One scholar says he was raised high above every creature, every category of creature. He's the one to whom belongs the right and the dignity of the firstborn. And that's an important point about that term, because when Paul says firstborn here, the emphasis is not maybe the way we'd think of it. The emphasis on born, he's first among the created things, first among those who are born. No, the emphasis is on that position of honor. No created thing can say, I was here first. No created thing can say, I'm on a par with you. I'm on a level with you. There is some of your honor that I am entitled to. That scholar concludes, all creatures without any exception must contribute glory to him and serve his purpose, owing him not only their origin, but he is also the goal of their existence. The firstborn in all things. He is what we're striving toward, what all of history is moving us toward. Paul gives the list, thrones, dominions, principalities, authorities, all the created things. Those supernatural ones, the angels that the false teachers are telling you to worship, they're created. They have no existence apart from Christ. They have no power apart from Christ. It's like the commercials will tell you to, why don't you just cut out the middleman? What do you need them for? And Paul is saying, all of these created things you want to worship, they're just the middleman. (laughs) Even the good ones. You don't need them between you and Christ. Why worship angels? You have access to Christ. Why turn to idols? You have access to Christ. We would even say to our Catholic brothers and sisters, why pray to created things? We have access to Christ. And verse 17 tells us this wasn't just a create and run scenario. All things were made through him and then he's done. Good luck, everybody. No, what does it say? All things hold together in him. They continue because of him. They have unity of purpose because of him. One of the commentaries I read does a great job of challenging us to think about both nature and history as having unity and purpose, despite the fact that that's not what we see at first glance. You think about like a a nature documentary and it's just tooth and claw. It's just wild. What in the world is going on out there? That's law of the jungle. But wait, it's law of the jungle. There is an order to it. There's unity and a purpose. And when you watch a really good nature documentary, some of the stuff that just looks weird and purposeless, they'll show you, no, it's this way for a reason. It's this way for a purpose. They unpack it. They explain it. All of nature is like that. And even though it doesn't appear that way on first glance, all of history is like that. There's a unity and a sense of purpose. There's a direction. As we talked about in the Job Sunday School class, we're not living in a chaos. We're living in a cosmos, a purposeful, direction-oriented universe. Why? Because Christ made it all and Christ holds it all together. 
And Christ drives it all forward to his ends. It's the only way we can explain or make sense of what we see and experience. It's the only way we can have a life that has purpose, not a chaos, but a cosmos. Even such a simple, essential question, what was I made for? What is the purpose of all this? Those other options, those not gods, those false religions ultimately have nothing to say. You're you're a servant to an arbitrary and capricious deity who has no personal relationship with you and no vested interest in the outcome. Scripture says, oh no, no, you and you and you and you and you and you. You were created to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. It has an answer. A cosmos, not a chaos. And that doesn't mean it always feels that way. But isn't that exactly why we have to learn these truths We have to fix them in our minds, in our hearts, so that we're in the middle of what feels in every way like chaos. When we experience trial and adversity that feels in every way purposeless, we remember we have our but, if not, moment. The truths call us back. And that's because, as one pastor said, what holds nature and history together is not chance. It's not the laws of nature. It's not any false god or lesser being. As Paul says here, all things hold together in him. We get even a tiny demonstration or representation of that cosmos chaos in this text. Kids, before you could read and you'd look at a page of the Bible like this, what would you see? You'd see a mishmash of letters and squiggles, right? We don't know what those words are. And even when you learn how to read and sometimes your eyes glaze over and you see all of these words or good grief, if you ever look at the Greek text, it is just a page of mishmash and squiggles. Until you look more closely And then there's a a logical consistency. There's a meaning and a purpose there that wasn't immediately evident. Look closely at the structure of this text. I said that verses 15 through 20 were a hymn or a, a creed, and it's two parts. We've been focusing on 15 through 17. Let's call that Christ is supreme in creation. All three of those verses, Christ is supreme in creation. But there's also a part two, verses 18 through 20. Let's call it Christ is supreme in redemption. And just take your fingers and look at these two sections, starting in verse 15 and starting in verse 18. Verse 15 says, who is? And so does verse 18. Verse 15 says, the firstborn. And so does verse 18. Verse 16 says, for in him. And so does verse 19. Verse 16 says, in the heavens and on earth. And so does verse 20. In creation, in redemption, Christ is supreme in both the same words, the same phrases, in the same order, with the same design and the same purpose. Christ is supreme. And all of nature and all of history 
can be subjected to that same scrutiny and they'll produce the same answer. Christ is supreme. There in 18 through 20, Christ is supreme in redemption. It says, through everything he might be preeminent, through him to reconcile himself to all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul uses the language of head and body. It's an outstanding metaphor to explain the relationship between Christ and his people or Christ and his church. The deeper you go in unpacking that metaphor, the more points of connection you find. One of my commentaries even went so far to talk about how the brain is the source of uh, the release of hormones into our body and triggering these different hormones that cause growth. And the brain is where the, the synapses fire, or in many of our cases, misfire nowadays. And it's what causes us to move, to take action, to decide. He says the brain is the center of growth and of guidance. And what is Christ for the Christian? What is Christ for the church? He's the center of growth and of guidance. He created, he redeemed, he gives life, he gives growth, he guides and gives direction. Paul says all things were reconciled through him. We tried to mess this up. We did mess this up. Our sin set the universe out of alignment. As we discussed last week, all our relationships were broken. Horizontally, one to another. Most important, vertically, us to God. And in our sin, we go to war against God. And we kindle his wrath against sin. And Paul here says that in Christ, through the blood of the cross... The anger was satisfied. The wrath is turned away. Peace is made. Evil is conquered. All things are reconciled by the peace of his own blood. And he sits preeminent above all of it, giving it purpose, holding it together. Paul says, how do you access God? Christ. Yes, you've got your list of answers, but let's evaluate them one by one. Let's consider what they offer and what they bring to the table. And the good news for the indecisive is that all of these other options drop away and one stands out as preeminently supreme. That's why everyone will acknowledge the supremacy of Christ. That's what it says here. It can't be denied. Now, there's different ways we'll approach that acknowledgement. Some will do so by force. They'll do so unwillingly, even as they're demanding self-rule. Their knee will be bowed to Christ. But may it be for us that this supremacy is acknowledged willingly, that God changes our hearts and we gladly submit. We embrace the reconciliation that we long for. We embrace the lordship that we need. We recognize ourselves not as gods being quashed, but as prodigals being received, as wayward sons and daughters being called back and warmly invited and accepted with open arms. And that's why Paul turns his attention at the end to the Colossians themselves. He says, this is you. Don't be led astray. Don't settle for the not gods. Don't settle for the Christ plus. 
Christ is supreme. Christ is preeminent in creation and redemption. Christ has reconciled you to God. He's made peace by his blood. You're alienated. None of these options can reconcile you to God. You're hostile. None of these options will give you a heart of flesh. You are doing evil. None of these options can make you righteous. But Christ has reconciled you. Christ will present you holy and blameless. And what you must do, the way you willingly submit, is verse 23. Continue in the faith not shifting from the hope of the gospel. That's why Isaiah will turn Judah's attention back to God and his promises again and again and again. Yes, this judgment is for our rebellion and our idolatry. Yes, things are bad and they're going to get worse. The answer is not to continue to pursue not God. The answer is not to draw deeper to the things that brought us here, to turn more to ourselves. The answer is to turn to God, his invitation of reconciliation. The answer is to continue in faith and don't shift from the hope of his promises. And so for you, dear Christian, that question will appear time and time again. Why Christ? Why Christ? How do I find God? I'm following Christ and it doesn't seem to be working. Maybe come back to this text. It gives so many reasons. For why Christ, even the passage itself, not, not even the words, the existence of it. Have you thought for a minute that I said this was a hymn or a creed that Paul is writing in this letter, one that would have been, been known by the people. This is the but if not moment for the church, for the Colossians. And that means that Paul writing this letter 30 years or so after Christ is writing to people who already knew and already had memorized as a creed that Christ is preeminent in creation and in redemption. These claims of other religions that Christianity was made up by the church, that the deity of of Christ was this idea that came hundreds of years later as a power grab by the church. This text itself, Paul reciting something the people already know. Christianity is a reliable religion because of eyewitnesses like Paul, like the apostles, like the people in Colossae, like the early church. They saw him. The invisible God made visible through Christ. They saw him. I'd also say this text raises Christianity as supreme above the other options. And different things will be persuasive to different people. I tell you, this is the one that in my coming to a real faith was the most persuasive to me. Christianity is the only workable religion. This text tells us, how how can I access God is the question. And this text says, because it depends on God and not on you. You can access God because him who created all things, the one who made it, also holds it together and is also seeing it through to completion. Christianity can work because when all things needed to be reconciled, he reconciled them to himself. Consider the other religions. 
Consider what they demand of us. Even the me-isms that we make up. We set standards for ourselves and our own personal religion. And then what do we do over time? We lower them because we couldn't even keep our own standards. Christianity is workable because it's about his works and not mine. Because my salvation depends on him and not me. That also makes Christianity a hopeful religion. So many religions are not hopeful, they're wishful. Maybe this will turn out in the end. Maybe I'll end up on the good side. Maybe God will care about me. Maybe I will have done enough to matter. No, Christianity is a religion of true hope because the one who came down from heaven tells us how he will take us there. The one who made us and holds us together, redeems us and works all things in our lives for the good of our lives in him. The one who made us did not abandon us. He is our head. We, his church, his people, the body. I loved this quote from William Hendrickson's Colossians commentary because I was thinking that he wrote it in 1964. And so you get this little time capsule of what the congregation he's preaching to is worried about at that time. And none of these affect us at all. Things were just so different there. He said, since the Christ of Calvary rules the heavens and the earth in the interest of his kingdom and the glory of his name, always overruling evil for good, Neither automation, nor bomb, nor communistic menaces, nor depression, nor economic unbalance, nor fatal accident, nor gradual decline in mental vigor, nor hallucination due to nervous disorder, nor any invader from outer space (laughs) will ever succeed in separating us from the love of God in Christ. How do we know? Because Christ holds it all together. It's a religion of hope. Judah had their list of scary things. The Colossians had their list of scary things. Dr. Hendrickson in 1964 had his list of scary things. You have one. You have your list of things that threaten to separate you from the love of God in Christ, at least in your own mind. And because he holds all these things together, it is not true. And finally, that makes Christianity a purpose-giving religion. So many man-made religions, so many not-gods, if they're true, would cause us to say, well, then so what? What we do doesn't matter. Nothing we do can matter. There is no purpose. But the work of Christ, him the head, us the body, gives us purpose. We have to work it out The body has to follow the head. That's how we glorify and enjoy him forever. That's verse 23. Continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope. It's working out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's working out with our hearts, our affections and our hands and our bodies. What he has told us is true. The body following the head. Right before this passage, verses 9 through 14, Paul offers an amazing prayer for the Colossians. He prays for them to have knowledge of God's will, all spiritual wisdom and understanding, to bear fruit in every good works, and enough strength to endure all of life's trials. That's quite a prayer. How could you pray a prayer like that? 
How could you possibly pray a prayer that people would get those things? The answer can only be because you know you are praying in the name of and through the one who is preeminent over creation and redemption. You're praying to one who has the power to answer these prayers. The one who will give his people that understanding and strength. The one who will bring his people to glory. Christians, we are praying in the name of and through Christ. The answer that rises above all the others to Christ. Let's not forget that.